0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Monday, October 30th. On the pod today, the federal government's carbon tax carve-out on home heating oil is sparking political backlash. We'll talk to two prairie premiers who say this federal exemption is unfair. And Federal Minister Seamus O'Regan is here to respond. Plus, Israeli airstrikes have aid workers in Gaza worried after bombs fell near a Gaza hospital that is said to be sheltering thousands of displaced Palestinians over the weekend. Israel is warning hospitals in northern Gaza to evacuate. We'll speak to a humanitarian organization who says that's impossible to do without risking the lives of patients. And that's where we begin, with the fallout from the federal government's decision to pause the carbon tax for home heating oil for three years. It's igniting political controversy across the country, with some provinces claiming unfair treatment. Seamus O'Regan is the Federal Minister of Labor, and he represents the riding of St. John South Mount Pearl in Newfoundland and Labrador. Minister O'Regan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Uh, since this move on Thursday to exempt home heating oil, uh, there's been a lot of criticism. People saying that this undermines your argument that the carbon tax is affordable and that it's equally applied.
0: What's your response? My response is that I think it actually strengthens uh, the carbon tax. Because, it, look, this is, this is Canada. This is a country where we adapt. Uh, policies to different parts of the country into specific needs. Ho- home heating oil is very specific in Atlantic Canada, ma- mainly because it's so generally used. About half the population of, ho- of or, or at least half the households in PEI, mm-hmm. uh, some 36% in Nova Scotia, 22% in Newfoundland and Labrador. So you've got that. Plus, I mean, I know this is somebody who was on home heating oil. Uh, you've got incredible price volatility right now. You know, with home heating oil, that you just don't have elsewhere. And the intensity of pollutants in home heating oil is very, is you know, very particular. We had a problem. Like, how, you know, because because it, the market mechanism of the of the policy of the price on pollution wasn't working. You had a $24,000 boulder there in front of it, some of which we've been whittling away at, but not enough to make a critical difference in an important part of the country, in Atlanta, Canada. Right, but People want to make the move, but they've got to be able to afford to make it. Right, move.
1: Right, but now you have another big problem. Alberta is upset. Saskatchewan's upset. Ontario is upset. A lot of places that have been opponents of carbon pricing from the beginning. Y- you've said all along that because of the rebates, people will be better off uh, in, in in terms of what they get back mm-hmm. than what they pay out, mm-hmm. doesn't this move say that that's not the case? That you're doing this because it wasn't affordable for people. First of all, e- oil? nothing
0: nothing that we did on Thursday or Friday uh, hurts anybody in Alberta, Saskatchewan, or frankly any other part of the country. And the exemption on home heating oil is national. It does affect Atlantic Canada the greatest because that's where the greatest by sure. far concentration of users of home heating oil is. So no, I don't. I mean, I don't buy that argument. But we were hitting we were hitting a roadblock but the on affordability should cover what and, they not, pay, and right? not just affordability, but also the ability to find people to install heat pumps. We right. need more people doing that. And there's a, there's a lineup of people waiting. So in the interim, let's take a pause on the price on pollution. It's very important that we say that it's a pause because it's still an important market price signal. That is one of the strengths of the, pr- of the price on pollution. But on the other hand, we need to make sure that people have a chance.
1: Right. But the, the price volatility doesn't go away on oil by removing the carbon tax. It's still there. Right, So it hasn't solved the price volatility issue. It's just now it's not applied in one part of the country. While well, it is applied for people in Ontario who burn natural gas and people out west who burn natural gas. And you've got Premier Smith, who we're going to speak to, and Premier Moe, who we're going to speak
0: with, who say that is completely unfair. Except for in three years' time, a lot of that price volatility won't matter because we'll have a critical mass of people in Atlanta, Canada on heat pumps. And then that is a, you know, up to like two to three times more efficient than uh, even a fairly efficient furnace. So that will be a huge win. You know, if we can identify a win and go for that win, let's do it.
1: Right. So, so this is an issue that is, it, it, it's a policy that is national in its application, but it is more acutely an Atlantic issue because of the preponderance of people who burn, on home, burn mm-hmm. home heating oil. Goody Hutchings, uh, small Rural Development Minister, was on with my colleague Vasha Capellas on CTV this weekend, and she suggested in her answer that the Atlantic caucus was able to make itself heard, and if the prairies had more liberals, they'd be able to make themselves heard for exemptions on things like natural gas or home heating. I-
0: is that the government policy? More liberals gets better results? No. Um, what does she mean, then? But what, what uh, I, I, I don't speak for. Well, I will say this. I know because you know, we're in caucus together. Um, Atlantic caucus, we were all home this summer. Uh, I heard from my constituents directly. There was a lot of anxiety about what the price on pollution applied to home heating oil would do to people because are, it is already astronomically high. It rose during the carbon price or the oil price war that happened at the same time as COVID. I was natural resources minister. I remember it well. It has never gone down. It has only gone up for the most part, and people were really worried about it. There is a huge sensitivity in my riding and in my province uh, because of rate mitigation. Something you know with Muskrat Falls and something that we were able to 5.2 billion. Dollars to mitigate, but there's a huge sensitivity to energy prices. And I know from the work that I did on rate mitigation that it does not take much to throw tens of thousands of households below the poverty line. So there was a great deal of anxiety. MPs heard it. We got together. We tried to find solutions. We took it to our national caucus. We took it to everybody. Um, and, And at the end of the day, I think, you know, following that timeline, we found a solution. There was I think uh, a growing anxiety because we knew people were, were filling up their tanks right now and we wanted to make sure that it, it, you know if we could find a solution that we acted
1: okay for. so you're not hearing that from Western Canada I mean you got George Shahal, you got Randy Boissonneau in Alberta you know you, you've got uh, uh, Ben Carr and other in, in Winnipeg I mean you're not hearing concerns from the western part of your caucus I mean what did Minister Hutchings mean by
0: this the concern here was home heating oil and the concern was the number of people in Atlanta Canada on home heating oil which is far more expensive in a place that everybody in the country all really recognizes suffers, unfortunately, from energy poverty.
1: Right. Look, I, I've heated my home with oil when I lived in St. John's, and I heat my home with gas now, and I will take the price of natural gas over the price of oil uh, any day because exactly. it, there is a big gap there. But there is now a big gap in how this policy is being applied, you know, in the part of the country where you and me are from, and then in the part of the country where people like Daniel Smith and Scott Moe are from. A- and they, they look at this and say it is a double standard. Scott Moe said today that as of January 1, Sask Energy is going to stop collecting the carbon tax natural gas and stop remitting it to the federal government because of what uh, you guys did for the Atlantic region?
0: If we had absolute consistent and uniform policy in this country, I don't think we'd have a country. We always make sure that whenever we have federal policies, or for that matter provincial policies, and I know as somebody who grew up in Labrador and thought that St. John's was the long arm of the law, let alone Ottawa, there are very particular exceptions Uh, advantages and disadvantages to living in different parts of the country and if you are going to apply public policy you've got to make sure that you take advantage of those and that you're sensitive to those. I believe that quite firmly. Uh, When I was in my 20s, I wrote the Premier of the day and said, You're neglecting Labrador because the policies here are not specific to Labrador. I still hold to that. It's one of the reasons I'm in politics, to be honest with you. So if something's not working, you fix it. If it's not working in any particular part of the country for particular circumstances, you are sensitive to it, you listen to it, and you change it, but do not give in on the objectives of it. And the objectives here, as always have been with the price on, on pollution, one, lower emissions. To affordability, but you know, in September, Stephen
1: Guilbeau, the Environment Minister, when, when Daniel Smith was looking for an exemption on the clean grid regulations to come in place by 2035, he said we can't have exemptions for specific parts of the company country. It wouldn't be fair to the other parts, so he said no to Alberta. 30 days ago.
0: He's, he's talking about a policy that I know he is you know quite familiar with. I'm not going to speak for that particular policy, but I do know that within this one, within the price on pollution, knowing that affordability was always at the core of the price on pollution. 8 out of 10 families do better. I mean, that, you know that's a fact. But you have that on the one hand, and you have Wanting to lower emissions, on the other, we have a very particular problem in Atlantic Canada with home heating oil, with its volatility, with its intensity, and with you know, and the fact that so many people use it. That if we can get rid of this significant obstacle that's in people's way, uh, and make sure that while they are working on that, buying us some time to do that, we have a pause on the price on pollution as it's applied to home heating oil across the country. Right. Let's do it. Look, it makes I- sense because it will achieve those two goals. It's it, it you know it's it looks at affordability square. And the face, and it will lower emissions. We will come out of this with a critical mass of people in Atlantic Canada off of home anymore.
1: Look, I, I understand the acute economic pressures, especially in rural uh, Atlantic Canada, for people with houses that aren't worth a lot of money, you know, and the inability to finance a, a heat pump and the cost and it being prohibitive. I understand all of that, uh, but you have now the Premier of Saskatchewan threatening to stop collecting a federal tax, right? And, and you have the Premier of Alberta saying that you know Gilbo's uh, refusal to give them an exemption on the grid and these comments by Minister Hutchings over the weekend just show that this is political and playing to a liberal base. That's their argument.
0: Well, it's certainly being spun that way by people who were never fans of it in the first place. So I don't know why you know, we're all clutching our pearls and saying, my gosh, can you believe that they're saying this? I mean, you know, this is right out of it. Um, but, but on the other hand, uh, I have done my level best as natural resources minister and in my time uh, now as, as labor minister as well and related to this file um, to try and take... <laughs> whenever I could, the politics out of this. I mean, the first trips I made as labor minister and as natural resources minister were to Alberta and Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. This is a huge national unity issue. We are the fourth largest producer of oil and fifth largest producer of natural gas in the world. And yet we want to do the right thing and show the world that it can be done. But this is going to take a lot of work and it's going to take all hands on deck. We are not reaching net zero without Alberta and Saskatchewan. So I'm, I just need to make sure I work harder with them to find solutions.
1: So I appreciate, and just as a final question, I appreciate you probably haven't discussed this as a cat. Cabinet, but what is this government going to do if Saskatchewan stops collecting and remitting a federal tax?
0: This is a sequencing thing, because if I had discussed it in cabinet, I would tell you. <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, well, uh, well, you'd well, have
1: uh, a plan. You'd have a position, at least, that you could articulate. So I appreciate you may not be able to answer this right now. I, I mean, But how do you respond to that? Is the premier threatening to defy
0: the law? Look, I think right now you have a lot of politics being played on an issue that I think, frankly, is just... Uh, at some point I would like us to rise above partisanship on this issue because it is such a consequential issue. It is, frankly, a mission of this country to show the world that we are capable of doing this, but it is going to be, it's going to be messy for a long time. We are going to be talking about lowering emissions and the issues of affordability, like they are in other democracies around the world. We're going to be talking about it for a long time. If I can do one thing, it is to try and lower the temperature on what is already a very hot topic, and I recognize that. Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan, thanks for coming in. Thank you, David.
1: And now for some of that provincial perspective, we turn to Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Premier Smith, welcome back to the show.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: So the federal government, through Minister O'Regan and others, are arguing the Atlantic provinces, this is a specific challenge faced by a specific subset of people because of the volatility of oil and the high price, and this is not an undermining of the carbon tax policy. It's not unfair. What's your reaction to that?
2: Well, he's wrong. It absolutely undermines the policy. The reason the federal government said that they needed to have a federal tax is so that every region of the province, every ratepayer ended up paying the same thing. They argued that before the Supreme Court and so here we are a couple of years later and they're already making exceptions in and, and essentially basically saying if you want an exception you have to vote for the liberals and if you uh, and, and if you don't have vote for the Liberals you're not going to get an exception if if the fuel tax is causing affordability problems in the winter because of home heating, it's causing a problem everywhere. It's not just in Atlantic Canada. It's in the West where we use natural gas. It's places where they use propane. And he would be very wise to, uh, to rethink the, the tax in the first place, take it off of home heating, and rethink his policy. We've been calling for an end to the carbon tax. And these are the reasons why. Because it's painful. The amount of the, of the, of the rate is, is too high. It's, it's creating a massive affordability crisis. And we're all feeling it.
1: I, I heated my home with oil when I lived in uh, St. John's. I heat my home with gas now that I live in Ottawa, and the price gap is enormous. Oil, much, much higher. Uh, so the, part of the argument is is that there's just no comparison in the prices, and when the volatility hits oil, it spikes crazy high. I mean, do you understand at least some of that, that economic argument being made for, for these changes?
2: Well, we, we've been making the economic argument. Every single person in this country is feeling the pinch because of the inflation crisis. A lot of that is being driven because the carbon tax is driving up the, the cost of everything. We're getting into winter in places that rely on hydrocarbon fuels for their power grid, for their home heating. It's really painful. And I don't think that he's uh, I don't think that he's appreciating just how much division he's creating by saying one group of, of citizens is entitled to a tax break and another group is not. That's just not
3: fair.
1: So Stephen Gibault, the environment minister, he gave an interview uh, to my colleague Daniel Thibault with Radio Canada this weekend, and he said this is it, there's no more exemptions, um, that, that, that this would be the only thing. As long as he's environment minister, that will be exempt. I know you've tangled with Minister Gibault over the, the clean energy grid regulations in 2035. Uh, how does it make you feel about the possibility of you getting what you're looking for when the minister has redrawn, I guess, the line in the sand on this?
2: Well, I have to tell you, I think their, their policy is in utter chaos. And what they need to do is be working with the provinces. The The recent Supreme Court decision that acknowledged that provinces have the right to develop their resources, have the right to develop their own electricity grid, and that the federal government can't be using a pretext to make unilateral policy. They have to work in a, a spirit of cooperative federalism. I, I haven't seen much of that from Environment Minister Stephen Guibo. I'm hoping that he changes his tune. But this kind of approach that they take where... They give a, a special exception and then basically say we did it because they voted for the liberals and too bad to everybody else. That's 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 not good for the country. It's divisive, and they need to they need to, to go back to the drawing board on this. I would like to see them eliminate the carbon tax altogether, particularly on home heating because it's painful in uh, in Alberta coming up on the on the winter months as well. You've said, you've also seen what Scott Mo is now going to do. Scott Mo said, hey, look, we're we're not going to collect it anymore. They have a crown corporation in Saskatchewan, so now you've got uh, a. Problem problem where, where you've broken down the principle of the policy all across the country. So they've made a mess of it and now it's up to them to fix it. Uh,
1: well, that was a perfect segue because we're going to speak to Premier Mo later in the show and I was going to ask you about that. He says come January 1, Sask Energy is just not going to collect the carbon tax when it comes to uh, home heating with natural gas. Is that something Alberta would consider or is uh, a Saskatchewan alone on this one?
2: Well, we don't have the ability to do that. Saskatchewan has, of course, a crown corporation. So Sask Energy has the ability to do that. We have a private market. And so we have a, a number of different players in our private market. I can't ask them to break the law. Uh, but here we are uh, in a situation where we're going to have different policy in every part of the province because the federal government is is not enacting a policy fairly in each of the different regions. So they they made a mess of it, and I think that they should acknowledge that rather than trying to deflect and then do do what is right, do what is fair and take the fuel tax off all home heating fuel.
1: You say you can't ask uh, private companies to break the law. Is that what you think Scott Moe would be doing? He's acknowledged that in the Twitter video he put out, sort of saying some people will say this is against the law, but he kind of says based on what happened in Atlantic Canada, he's prepared to do it. Is this what Saskatchewan is threatening to do illegal in your view?
2: Well, the, the federal, he says it is. The federal government does have the, the ability under the Constitution. The Supreme Court rendered a judgment saying that they could apply the federal carbon tax. But I think that they said that because they expected the federal government would apply it equally to the regions, fairly across all fuel types, and to every citizen. When they're not doing that, they've undermined the case that they have made for why they should have this power in the first place. And so I can see why, why, um, why Premier Mo is taking the decision that he did. We, we don't have the ability to do that. We don't have a crown corporation here. And we have um, many, many private sector companies. I certainly wouldn't ask them to do that. But why should we have this level of unfairness where our neighbor in Saskatchewan isn't going to have the tax, our neighbors in uh, Atlantic Canada won't? And we do. That doesn't seem to be a very constructive way of proceeding on on this policy. It's way too divisive.
1: You, you've referenced it a couple of times uh, in this conversation about what uh, Goody Hutchings, a rural development minister, uh, said to, to my colleague Vashi Capellos at CTV over the weekend that the prairies should elect more liberals if they want to have those conversations. Um, I asked James O'Regan about that. He kind of said, I don't know what she meant by that. He wouldn't really engage on it in a meaningful way. Uh, what, what do you think she meant and what are the implications of what she said?
2: Well, I have to tell you, it sounds like the kind of thing that they joke around uh, the cabinet table all the time. Well, you know, if they want anything from us, I guess they should just vote for more liberals. That's not appropriate, and it's not the way a government should act. When you get elected as a government, you're a government for all people, all regions, regardless of whether they voted for you or not. And when you enact a policy and you go to the court saying that you have to enact it because you are the only one who can enact it fairly, and then you enact it unfairly, then you undermine your credibility. So, I I have to say uh, that uh, I think it it expressed what we have often felt in Western Canada that they have no interest in coming to the table in a spirit of true cooperative federalism. And that's got to end. We all share the same objectives. We all want to make sure that we're reducing emissions. But we have to make sure we take care of our people first. And our people are suffering an affordability crisis, a lot of it being caused by the punitive carbon taxes levied by the federal government. And now they can't even enact them fairly. And so they'll make a reprieve in a region of the country that tends to vote for more liberal MPs. That's just not right.
1: So, Premier, what do you do about it at this point? Like, I know you're upset and you're talking to me and and you're making the case uh, to a national audience. Scott Moe is going to do something you do not have the capacity to do because of the different structures of your energy markets. Is there a legal recourse or any other sort of option you can take? Or is it this is strictly a a political fight uh, at this point?
2: Well, I hope, I hope there's a political solution to this. I mean, even our own NDP opposition in Alberta has said that that has taken the same position as we have, which is that we need to have fairness across the country. And so this is no longer a partisan issue in our province. We, we think it's outrageous that the federal government would uh, disadvantage our region compared to the to another region in the country. So I would say that uh, you'll see a unified voice coming out of Alberta saying that we want some fairness. I'd like to see the two liberal MPs that Albertans did elect, Randy Boissoneau and George Chahal, stand up and and advocate on our behalf if that's what what it takes according to the minister but this is uh, this is not the way to to create unity this is not the way to get people on board with the overall agenda of a re- reducing emissions if uh, if one group one part of the province can get a reprieve and, and the other can that's just not fair
1: Alberta premier daniel smith thanks for taking the time today appreciate it
2: thank you One
1: topic dominated today's debate in the House of Commons the decision by the federal government to exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax for three years. It's a move that largely benefits Atlantic provinces, with some Western premiers calling it unfair. Scott Moe is one of those premiers. He's the Premier of Saskatchewan, and he joins me now. Premier Moe, thanks for taking the time.
4: No, well, thank you, David.
1: The federal government justifies exemption for home heating oil by saying oil is much less efficient than natural gas. has seen larger increases in costs, and it simply makes the situation unaffordable for a small subset uh, of people in Atlantic Canada. Did you buy that argument?
4: Oh, no, not at all. I, I, listen, we heat our homes uh, in different ways across this country. We have... Uh, you know, 85% of Saskatchewan residents use natural gas. Uh, but there is a certain number that use propane or even electric heat in some of our northern and, and, uh, many indigenous communities uh, throughout the north. Uh, also expensive, also, uh, you know, unfairly, I, I think being, uh, uh, being par- having this uh, carbon taxation scheme of which we've never agreed with, uh, being applied to them, and so at the end of the day, uh, th- this scheme uh, we've always thought it's the wrong policy. Uh, we've, but it has, outside of Quebec, been applied fairly uniformly across the nation. That no longer is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we've said is the federal government should, uh, uh, if they do make an exemption in what is predominantly an Atlantic Canadian exemption, they should extend that to all Canadians across the nation. If they don't. Uh, Saskatchewan will take matters into our own hands.
1: Okay. I want to talk about that. Just uh, for the audience at home, Quebec is exempt from this because they have a cap-and-trade system that the federal government says meets its standards. So therefore, the the carbon price isn't applied there the way it is in other provinces. But uh, on your last, (laughs) the last thing you said there about take matters into your own hands, I I saw in your Twitter feed today, uh, you said come January 1, you're going to tell Sask Energy to stop collecting the carbon tax on natural gas for home heating and stop remitting that money uh, to the federal government. And you admitted that it is probably illegal. I mean, are you prepared to, to break the law to protest this?
4: Well, first we would hope that it never comes to that. We would hope that the federal government would make a decision to uh, to ensure that all Canadian families are, are being treated equally. And this whole conversation is about fairness for uh, Canadian families, and in our case, uh, the families that we represent in, in Saskatchewan. Um, with respect to the, the the entire carbon taxation scheme, we've always felt it's the wrong policy. Um, But really what we're doing in this case is uh, doing what the federal government is doing. And so if it's deemed uh, illegal for a provincial government to provide that that benefit um, or that pause for three years on carbon tax uh, for how they heat their home, The federal government is doing that in one area of Canada. And so we're really uh, mirroring or emulating what the federal government is doing. And so if uh, if we would be if that would be deemed to be illegal at the provincial level, I think the federal the federal government would have some challenges um, defending uh, their decision as well.
1: Well, uh, and and I'm not defending what the government has done here, but it's a federal tax right so they can decide what happens with it i guess right like you have no authority we've spoken in the past about respecting jurisdictions this is their jurisdiction whether you like what they're doing with it or not and and some of the analysis i've read of what you're you're proposing to do here uh premier mo is that you're just going to be on the hook for the money that you're not collecting and have to remit it to the federal government anyway
4: This is federal jurisdiction. Uh, As uh, described by the Supreme Court of Canada, the reason this is federal jurisdiction is so that the federal government can uniformly apply uh, their carbon tax scheme uh, to all Canadians across Canada. If you go back to the Supreme Court ruling, that was very clear uh, in that particular ruling. And so uh, we've always said it's the wrong policy, um, but as I said, outside of Quebec, it's been fairly uniformly applied. Um, That's no longer true today. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we've asked the federal government is to revisit um, the 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 regionality of the policy that they have come forward with um, revisit it with an eye to treating all Canadian families the same we all have affordability challenges uh, in Saskatchewan our 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 uh, our natural gas bills forty uh, percent of those comp- are compromised uh, from carbon taxation and so we all have do have affordability challenges regardless of where we live uh, we would ask the federal government to make a decision that it with more of an eye to treating Canadian families equitably. Uh, We think that's the right thing to do for any government, regardless of their stripes. And it's uh, what we would ask the federal government to do. If they don't, um, then we are willing to take some steps here in Saskatchewan that would mirror or emulate what they are doing already in Atlantic Canada.
1: But, Premier, I wonder what sort of legal analysis you've had done on that, uh, you know, in terms of uh, your ability to do this, the financial implications of if you do do it. Because if you don't take in the revenue on the bills... Sask Energy or or the or the government could end up being on the hook for this, and it just becomes a cash transfer from the government or the crown agency of Saskatchewan to the federal government rather than collecting it from uh, your ratepayers.
4: Or the entire policy could fall by the wayside due to the fact that the federal government is not uh, implementing it equitably across the nation in Canada, which was the very reason um, that this was deemed to. Uh, um, to, to be in the federal jurisdiction, uh, what was shared jurisdiction? Uh, the federal government uh, was was able to do this with the understanding. Uh, that they would do it fair and equitably uh, from coast to coast in the nation. They're not doing that anymore.
1: Right, but the, the Supreme Court decision, um, and, and look, I'm not a lawyer, so forgive me, it was, it was that it was a recognition that because of the polluting effects of greenhouse gases, it goes across different jurisdictions. It's not contained within a provincial, uh, particular provincial boundary. Therefore, it falls into the federal government's uh, constitutional authority to to, to price. Um, I, I mean, they still have the legal right to do this and I because it's not, uh, and this is why they had the ability, for example, not to impose it in Quebec or in other provinces when they had programs that met their stringency requirement. Uh, So so they do have latitude and and discretion in how it's applied. I I just wonder if you're potentially setting yourself up for a big legal fight uh, if you go down this path.
4: So before we ever come to any decisions on on January 1st uh, you know we would one would truly hope uh, that we don't live in in a nation that is anywhere near that divisive. Um, A nation where a federal government would choose one area of, for political reasons, it appears, uh, to choose one area of Canada uh, to uh, not have to pay their their carbon taxation scheme while the rest of the nation ultimately would have to. And so we we feel that there's a real opportunity here for the federal government to revisit uh, the decision they've made, uh, revisit it in the best interest of all Canadian families. At the end of the day, um, this conversation is not about, uh, for example, Saskatchewan picking a fight with the federal government. This is about fairness for the families families that we uh, collectively represent. Uh, 13 premiers will be together next week. I'm sure this is going to be part of that discussion. I'm sure other premiers are hearing about uh, the, the the inherent unfairness of the, the policy that has uh, been introduced by the federal government. And we would ask them to revisit it. That is uh, the right thing to do. And we'd say that's, I would say that's the Canadian thing to do.
1: That's right. Yeah, the Council of the Federation is meeting in Halifax, I believe, uh, uh, next week. Um, but, you know, Premier, I, I wonder on this point, um, Goody Hutchings, the Minister of Rural Economic Development, Made some comments over the weekend in an interview with CTV, saying that uh, a line along, along the lines that the Atlantic Caucus was able to make its case, and maybe the Prairies needs to elect more liberals, uh, so you can hear that the argument can be made uh, by Western MPs as well. Uh, I don't know if there's been some walking back of that or not, but but how do you interpret those comments, and what effect is it having in your province?
4: Well, I would say entirely disappointing uh, to have a member of government or in cabinet, no less, uh, that feels that uh, that they're part of a government that doesn't represent all Canadians. Uh, that would be disappointing. I think not only for for myself as a resident of Saskatchewan, as a, as a as a as a premier of of a province in in this nation that I still think is great, Um, but I think it would be disappointing for for mo- the vast majority of Canadians as well. Uh, listen, um, problem provincial residents have other ways to have their voice heard um saskatchewan's voice very much is being heard today through their their provincial government and i'm certain that will uh, continue uh in the days in in the days ahead and what we have said and we've been very clear is uh you know first and foremost we've always said this is uh this carbon taxation scheme just simply is not the right policy. In fact, we think it should be scrapped for, for, for everyone on everything. And that would be our primary uh, policy position in this province. Second, uh, we would say uh, that the federal government, when they make changes like they have, uh, specific to home heating oil that specifically do target Atlantic Canada, that they would, uh, they would revisit that in in an effort to treat all Canadians equitably. And if they don't, uh, we've been very clear with respect to what we ultimately will look at doing here in the province of Saskatchewan to ensure fairness for Saskatchewan families. So, so Premier, there's no indication, just as a
1: final question, they're going to scrap the whole thing. Certainly, it, they're pretty wedded to this, the, the federal Liberals are. And uh, Minister Guilbeau, uh spoke with my colleague Daniel Thibault at Radio Canada this weekend and said... No more carve-outs. This is it, as far as he's concerned, uh, as, as environment minister. So just as a final point, uh, what, what's your reaction to minister, the minister seemingly closing the door uh, to what you're asking for?
4: Well, I would say a month ago, Minister Gabo said there was no carve-outs at all. In the last week, we've seen a significant carve-out for one area of, of the of the nation. And I have no idea how this federal government is not going to uh, reduce uh, or, or mirror that uh, for, for all Canadians across the nation. And so, Gabo's words uh, really, uh, you, you know, aren't worth that much in today's day and age. Um, and, you know, we'll see where this goes. We know where it's going in Saskatchewan. We would hope that the federal government, and have given the federal government a great opportunity Opportunity, I think to uh, to make a decision to treat all Canadians equally, regardless of where you live. Um, and if they don't, we're going to take uh, action to ensure that Saskatchewan families uh, do experience the same degree of fairness that we're seeing uh, for Atlantic Canadian families. Um, the, but I'm sure this is gonna be much discussed in the days ahead, um, but not a lot of faith in in what Minister Gabot has been saying the last while, or. or um, with respect to what's occurred and what the federal government has decided, it doesn't look like his colleagues have much either.
1: Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, thanks for your time today. Take care, David. Well, there are others who disagree with this carbon tax exemption for home heating oil, but for very different reasons than Premier Moe. To give us an assessment of the federal government's change to the carbon tax, we turn now to Trevor Toom, a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Professor Toom, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us.
5: Great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: You you said on your Twitter feed, the carbon tax is effectively dead and the federal government killed it in the dumbest way possible.
5: What what do you mean? One of the key arguments for carbon taxes is uniformity of treatment across regions, across individuals, across businesses of different sectors to really just provide an incentive for those who have easy, low-cost ways to avoid emitting. To do so. And, and once you start carving out one exception, you ramp up pressure to carve out or other exceptions. We're seeing that right now with uh, many Premier Scott Moe, Daniel Smith, mm-hmm. even uh, Ontario Premier Ford calling for natural gas uh, to be accepted. And they do it on home heating in a way that undermines their Primary political argument for the carbon tax, which up until last week, it was that it was a measure that put more money in the pockets of Canadians and therefore helped with affordability. And now they're saying the exact reverse message that exempting its coverage helps with affordability. And that will make it really difficult to call or to resist calls to remove the carbon price from other fuels, even transportation fuels.
1: So, so one of the issues w- with home heating oil, and, and I used home heating oil when I lived in St. John's, and it was the wild swings in the price, right? And that, you know, as oil prices went up over $100, bu- I remember it was almost $800 for a single month in, in a St. John's winter because oil was up to like $160 a barrel or something in, in that neighborhood. And, and that puts people in a situation where no matter what market signal you send, they just don't have the means to, to make the transition that, that they're hoping to encourage. Is that a valid argument, that the affordability goes beyond simply the carbon price? Because that's what the government is saying.
6: Well,
5: wild swings in energy prices are not unique to home heating. Natural gas is also seeing very considerable price swings over time, as has transportation fuel, all things that are exposed to World oil prices. And if volatility is the issue, there are ways of thinking about how to address that from a policy perspective. You could spread costs out over many more months. You could think about having regulatory approaches that some jurisdictions do with gasoline, for example, having regulated prices as a way to try and smooth the volatility that we see there. If one has concerns around whether or not home heating oil has risen to a level that has made it really difficult for individuals to afford, the alternative policy prescription would be to provide cash transfers, to provide lump sum rebates, which is the way that we've addressed affordability concerns around carbon pricing up to this point. And so to now start exempting fuels to address affordability, that makes it really difficult to resist similar arguments right across the board, which is why I'm concerned that this move absolutely did completely change the game on carbon pricing in a way that may lead to its eventual removal, at least at the retail level, putting industrial emitters aside.
1: When, when this regime first came in nationally, uh, a lot of the Atlantic provinces, if not all of them, weren't on the federal backstop. They had their own policy solutions that at least got them to the stringency requirements in the opening days. But they exempted things like this, and then as the price rose, they couldn't hit the target, so they had to just bail out and sign on to the federal backstop. What does this exemption do to the argument that you need to hit a certain standard in order to be considered legitimate? Is the federal government hitting their own standard now in Atlantic Canada?
5: So that's right. Carving out this exemption does mean that the federal backstop no longer likely complies with the federal government's own benchmark. Let's not forget that the reason why the federal backstop applies in the Atlantic region today is because the provincial pricing systems that the governments at the provincial level were proposing did want to exempt home heating oil. And that was something that the government rejected because it was not broad enough coverage. Now, I can appreciate that moving from $0 a ton to $65 a ton on home heating on July 1, that's a big change, a much bigger change than what other heating fuels have seen because we gradually increased the price. But now I, I think about three years from now when they are going to return uh, the carbon tax to heating oil, then the carbon price, if it still exists, will be $110 a barrel. And so the shock will be even larger. So this is a pause that gets harder and harder to put back uh, with each year that passes.
1: So the solution, the government argues, is uh, aggressive incentives to get people to transition to heat pumps. J- just as a final point, if, if the market signal from the price was too much for people to bear, that's the argument from the government, will these transition to heat pumps? I think those will be attractive enough to get it at the scale they need to avoid a real problem three years from now.
5: Well, we have been seeing actually some pretty significant moves away from heating oil in many provinces. So the latest data we have is 2021 and Prince Edward Island has about 40% of homes with oil as their primary heating system. But as recently as 2017, just four years prior, it was 65% of PEI residents using heating oil. So there can be in relatively short order, some big moves in the amount of homes that are actually using this fuel. But three years from now, there's still going to be a substantial number of homeowners in the Atlantic region using this fuel. And it'll be really hard at that point to return carbon pricing at $110 a barrel. Uh, because if it was hard enough to go to 65, it's going to be that much more so to go to 110.
1: Trevor Toom, Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. More fallout today to the federal government's decision to pause the carbon tax on home heating oil. The major shift to their signature environmental policy has the Liberals defending their environmental record and it's igniting political controversy across the country with some provinces claiming unfair treatment.
0: The Prime Minister has just defined the issue of the next election. Vote for him and have a massive home heating tax vote for common sense conservatives and we will axe the tax for everyone and forever.
1: It actually will help to ensure that we are reducing the cost of home heating, uh, oil heating, across in every province and territory, while continuing to address climate change in a thoughtful way.
3: They gut programs, they hurt Canadians, and they're certainly not there when it comes to fighting climate change or supporting Canadians.
1: Last week's announcement on home heating only benefits Canadians that live where Liberals need to save their seats. All right, we're going to bring in the power panel to talk about all of this. Lisa Raid is a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, now the Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan Cabinet Minister, now Chief of Government Relations at the University of Toronto. And here with me in Ottawa, Vanda Nakata is a political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. Hello, gang. Happy Monday. Hello, David. So, so, Vandana, you know the old adage, when you're explaining, you're losing. The Liberals are doing a <laughs> lot of explaining since they made this decision on Thursday. What do you make of the fallout to this whole thing?
3: Well, I think, um, you know, when you look at climate change, you need to look at uh, it through an equity lens and how people affect, believe in, and experience climate change from downtown Toronto to rural areas are two different experiences. You know, in Toronto, you can hop on a TTC that's pretty easy. You know, I have family members in areas who drive an hour and a half to the local Costco. You know, so two different realities, and I think it's important that, you know, this government made a very ambitious climate change plan, but the climate and the the economy was different then, so I think it makes sense to take a moment to reevaluate and see, like, do we have to make alternatives for other Canadians, do we have to reassess some things, and this is a pause, so I think what they did was really just reassess the environment and think about, okay, if it's not working this way, you know, what can we do to, like, get people to buy into climate change overall?
1: Okay, but uh, Lisa, um, you, you and I are both from Atlantic Canada, so we know people, and probably in our family, who, who have burned oil, I burned oil, yeah. uh, when I lived there. Um, I, since I've been here and carbon prices come in, we were all told you're going to get back more than you're going to pay out, and now this changed because of the affordability uh, argument that's being laid out. How do you think this is going to play for them?
7: It's stunning, i got to <laughs> say. I don't have to- I'm... Almost without words on this one, Um, you know, Premier Higgs said to me in July of this year when we were talking about how July 1st was the date when all this went into place. He said, uh, look, um, wait until October. And I said, why October? He said, that's when the bills start coming in and that's when people start filling up for the the winter. Mm -hmm. And maybe during the summer, there's not gonna be so much going on, but just wait till the fall. And here we are sitting in the fall I mean, people, as you probably have heard too, David, I mean, I hear from people at home who have tripled in terms of the cost associated with their home heating going in, for whatever reason, the way it's balancing out. Politically, let's talk about it this way. This government has handed Scott Moe and Danielle Smith and any other fossil fuel dependent um, province uh, a big club to beat them with. I was on a panel with Tim Hudak when this was first announced, and Tim said, well, this is great. I just filled my propane tank. I guess I'm going to get a break on it, and I said, no, it's only, it's only the worst stuff. It's only the heating oil stuff that's going to get the break, and you need to be in Atlantic Canada. So I can't, I, It just fodder, and I think it really hurts mm-hmm. the legitimacy of what the Liberals said that they wanted to do on climate change.
1: So, so Andrew, the the, the break on home heating oil is national. You don't need to be in Atlantic Canada, but that's where the overwhelming um, number of people who burn oil to heat their home are. So it's effectively a regional policy with a national uh, application. But is there not an argument to be made, as the government is trying to do, that the volatility and and the high price of oil is so different than all of the other fuels that it warrants a carve-out? That is the argument they are making. Do you buy it?
8: Well, in a lot of ways, the market itself is doing what the carbon tax was supposed to do. The carbon tax is supposed to make fuel uh, unaffordable. That's the whole point of it. That's why I never understood why the liberals thought this was going to be a winning policy for them. Uh, And even at that, we're talking about a carbon tax that's maybe a third. It needs to triple in value before anybody believes it's actually truly going to be effective uh, as a means. So the entire policy was, uh, was an odd one to go with, this idea that, you're going to put the, the onus on the consumer rather than the suppliers and the emitters, that uh, they were going to pay this, that uh, this was going to continue to go up over a course of a decade uh, to a really uh, super high rate, and that somehow uh, all of that was going to reduce consumption. Uh, I, I never understood how this worked politically. I didn't understand how it worked in terms of the, econ- uh, you know, the economy or the environment. And so they've got themselves backed into a corner that was entirely predictable. Is this a good policy, certainly for Atlantic Canada? For sure. Is it good politics? Those are the only seats right now that they're really worried about. Uh, and so it makes perfect sense, uh, including the rhetoric that they're spinning out about uh, needing to vote Liberal to uh, to get the job done on that. It's not like they're going to win more seats in Saskatchewan or Alberta regardless.
1: No, but, uh, I mean, Rob, they're worried about seats in Ontario, and the Ontario government has also voiced some, uh, some objection to this. Uh, I don't know if this is enough to put a floor under their fortunes in Atlantic Canada, but, I mean, now that you've got Alberta mad, you've got Saskatchewan threatening to withhold... The carbon tax, we're going to talk to Scott Moe in just a little bit. I mean, where does this go?
9: Um, it, it, it's a, it goes in a bad direction. It looks like the Liberals had to take to the lifeboat, and on the way to the lifeboat, they had to jettison principle. Uh, and if you want to succeed in politics, y- you live and die by two or three of your bedrock policies. And when you start to shed your bedrock policies, you, you, you look like a government that, that is in real trouble. They look like they have taken to the lifeboats, uh, and that they're that they're in shark infested water. And you also make it look like your rival uh, has been right all along. This might not be axe the tax, but it's trim the ding a little bit. Right. That, that's what it is. It, effectively, they're, they're, they're slackening the impact. And like Andrew said, it's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to change behavior. In, in many ways, it makes economic sense. If, if you want polluters To stop polluting, you make them pay for polluting. Uh, And and so you want to change behavior. Uh, I also think, quite frankly, that it breeds cynicism. When people look at politicians who uh, uh, jettison bedrock principles, uh, they say, you know, why are we here? And that the real danger isn't that that they necessarily vote conservative, because a lot of the people who believe in this policy won't vote conservative. It's that... People are cynical, and we're going to stay home, and we're not going right. to vote at all next time.
1: Right. I, I mean, that I guess the issue with the market signal in small towns in rural Atlantic Canada, there's no market to take advantage of. This is a challenge, and, and you know, people may not have the, the home equity value to do a, an expensive heat pump and all of these things. But to pick up on Rob's point on cynicism... There were the comments that rural economic development minister Goody Hutchings made to, to my colleague Vashi Capellas the weekend saying perhaps they, meaning the Western provinces, need to elect more liberals in the prairies so that we can have that conversation as well, suggesting that the Atlantic caucus made itself heard. Um, a lot of liberals have suggested to me that this was not a helpful comment by Minister Hutchings. How do you think people are reacting to that?
3: You know, I think they're taking in offhand partisan comments. And it's becoming, it's spinning out of control. I don't think that's what Miss Hutchings meant by it. I think she just said it. Um, I think what she was trying to say is that, you know, there's a lot of folklore around, you know, the PMO controls everything, the center controls everything, and no one has, caucus has no power. But it shows that caucus come together, and they have a voice, and they can help create ideas of, like, okay, we can't, not going to take away the tax, we still have to, you know, put a price on pollution, we still have to have a strong climate change plan, how do we do it to make it work for us? And the pause is the best way to go forward, right? And I think it shows that there is a voice, and I think what she meant to say is that, you know, we hear you, and we speak for you, and that was listened to. I don't think... I know how she said it, it didn't come off well, but I don't think that's what she meant by it.
1: Right, but Lisa, I, you know, we've heard from <laughs> Western provinces all along, uh, you know, uh, they're discontent with this. I, I don't know what this does to Liberal MPs from Western Canada, uh, but, but certainly, uh, you know, it, uh, this hasn't been a particularly helpful thing, especially when a month ago, Stephen Gabot on the clean energy regulations for the grid by 2035 said mm-hmm. there will be no exemptions for regions of the province because it's not fair to the rest of the country.
7: Yeah, I I don't think that this was a mistake by Minister Hutchings. I think she knew exactly what she was saying. I think she delivered the message very well and I think it was a partisan message that she wanted to set out there to the Atlantic Canadian provinces and voters that we have your back, we're gonna be there for you. And I think it was very purposeful. And really to Andrew's point, he's bang on. They're not gonna win in Saskatchewan and Alberta. What do they care? So they do a risk analysis. What happens in Ontario if we say something like that? Will people hear in Ontario the phrase, if you vote liberal, you're going to be on the right side and we're going to listen to you? Um, And don't vote for the bad man, Pierre Polyev. And that's what we saw from Karina Gold in in the House of Commons in the clip.
1: Um, Andrew, I I wonder, just on Saskatchewan for a second, and we're Mm -hmm. waiting to to speak with Scott Moe. He said today that as of January 1, he's going to tell Sask Energy to stop collecting the carbon tax on uh, home heating through natural gas and stop remitting it to the federal government, acknowledging in the video in which he made this announcement that it's probably illegal. Uh, wh- what do you make of this development from the Premier of Saskatchewan?
8: You know, I want to pick up uh, Van point about the price on pollution, this uh, much overused phrase that the, that the Liberals have, this price on pollution. There's two ways to do it. One is the carbon tax, and the other is through these uh, you know, e- emission trading systems. Saskatchewan mm-hmm. has its own emission trading system. It put it in place to, to try to conform with federal environmental policy. Uh, mm-hmm. I was surprised a year ago because Sask Energy and Sask Power are both covered under that agreement that the carbon tax even still applies to them. It's the same within Ontario. Mm-hmm. There's no reason where we have these uh, output based uh, uh, pricing systems that they should be then double taxed. Essentially, we've got the pricing system, and now we've got the carbon tax added on. I think Scott Moe, if he weren't quite as partisan as he is, uh, he's driving obviously his own agenda, he would go back to arguing uh, that point uh, with the government. And there is, I think, an opportunity for the feds to say, look, let's strengthen that mechanism for pricing pollution and move off of the carbon tax, which obviously isn't working.
1: But but if he's going to do this, Andrew, I, I mean, what kind of legal jeopardy? As a former Saskatchewan cabinet minister, I mean, he's going to essentially try to tell a Crown Corp to, to break the law. I mean, can can he realistically do that?
8: I mean, all the, he's going to be, they'll be on the hook to remit. Mm. And this yeah. will end up becoming one of those, you know, federal-provincial uh, bun fights uh, down the road. Uh, the political, I mean, this is really a political question, more than one of uh, legality. I guess at some point, the feds could take uh, Saskatchewan to court or Sask power or Sask Energy. Uh, and demand that they, uh, you know, produce the uh, the tax, but you know, the co- political consequence of that is significant. Rob, how do you see that one going? Yeah,
9: I, I think that's really important. The, the federal government would probably almost certainly win in court, uh, but look, the country is 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 divided now in ways that I, I never saw it divided when I was a kid reporter here, uh, and this is a new fault line in in the federation. The federal government needs to lower the temperature on this very, very quickly. They don't want to go to court, uh, even if they want to win. They want to come up with another solution. The trouble is that solution may continue to dilute and water down what was supposed to be a bedrock policy for the liberal government. Uh, but. Uh, at, th- at this point, escalation is not going to help them. They need to lower the temperature.
1: Well, Vanda, how do they do that? How do you lower the temperature? I, I spoke to Premier Smith uh, earlier in the show, obviously quite upset and, and quite angry about this, though they have a different energy system in Alberta than Saskatchewan, so not no withholding of carbon tax. I mean, how do you, how do you lower the temperature when the people are mad at you or people who have never really gotten along with you in the first place?
3: Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, out of those Atlantic provinces, three of them, um, actually have a have an agreement with the federal government really help incentivize people to go onto electric pumps, right? So yeah, pumps. I think the uh, thing is they can still do the same thing. Like uh, you know, Premier Mo, uh, Premier Smith, she can they can come to Minister Wilkinson, they can also create their own incentive program. The point is and like I hear people's point that's the key bedrock on climate policy, but there's a number of things that this government has done. You know, ban single use practice, you see um, plastics. You've seen also a lot of agreements with uh, Minister Champagne and changing manufacturing companies and, and you know, battery powered, uh, you know. Um, vehicles and whatnot so there's a number of things we're doing on uh, the government's doing on the climate change side that's more than just the climate the price on pollution Um, and as much as this harms people they have to change and incentivize and change behaviors and I get that there is something that affordability is top of mind for all Canadians but so is climate change and if you want to get the youth vote Anyone under 30, under 25, they have climate anxiety. So, as much as people are worried about the credibility, at the end of the day, they are going to want to vote for somebody who still can, uh, who can tackle affordability, but also tackle climate, tackle climate change at the same time.
1: So, so Lisa, just on that point, I mean, how do they lower the temperature on this when it's a confluence of so many things coming together? Right, it's climate, it's affordability, it's Western alienation, it's anxiety about fossil fuel I- I- in industries and that transition. I mean, how do you lower the temperature when all of those things? are are baked into this.
7: I don't think they want to lower the temperature, but the escape valve in all of this is an election. And I don't know how we go to an election in the middle of what's happening in Gaza. So I think that they've really hooked themselves on this one. And they're gonna have to go through a lot of question periods where they're gonna hate what's being put to them, both by the NDP, the bloc, and by the conservatives. And it's going to be tough slogging for them and you know i watched jonathan wilkinson try to answer the question today the best that he could you can see that he's uncomfortable with it uh, because for years and years and years they have said you get more money back in the GST in the credit for the for the carbon credit than you do that you pay into the carbon tax and that has proven now to be false in the case of atlantic canada because otherwise why would they be taking it away
1: Well, the interesting thing is that uh, the Prime Minister said in making the announcement on Thursday is that because they're going to be collecting less, the rebates are actually going to go down in Atlantic Canada over the next three years because there's less money coming in. Andrew and Rob, quick final thoughts, and then we've got to say goodbye.
8: Yeah, I mean, lowering the temperature is going to be an important piece. I think they would like to figure out how to shift off of this carbon tax policy, which is obviously not working for them, to something that's stronger. The potential consequence of that, though, within the Liberal cabinet, I think is significant. The fact that uh, Stephen Gilboa was left as the environment minister says that he was holding a lot of cards and seems to have a lot of power that he wants to hold on to. That ability for them to balance between what the public wants and what activists within the cabinet want is, I think, a real tension that the prime minister is going to have to figure out how to navigate. That's the political heart of it. Uh Stephen
9: Gilbo said a month ago, how fair would it be to other regions of the country if we did this for Atlantic Canada? Um, I, I, I can't imagine what he's feeling like today. You know, Justin Trudeau uh, said that uh, 2015 was going to be the last election. Uh, that was going to be first past the post. He, he, he didn't do that. That wasn't necessarily corrosive to his, bl- uh, his brand, but it, it began to sow some doubt. He said that they were going to run modest deficits. Again, he didn't do that. Uh, COVID did blow a hole through that. But this, I think, will be corrosive to the liberal brand because it is bedrock. It is one of the two or three signature policies for the government. And I I don't know how you stop rust when it
1: starts like this.
4: Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got to
1: leave it there because we're out of time. And Premier Scott Moe standing by. I want to thank everybody, Lisa Wright, Andrew Thompson, Von Denikater, and Rob Russo. Thanks so much, gang.
8: Thanks, David.
4: Thanks, David.
1: Bombs rained down on a besieged Gaza today and over the weekend as Israel says it is targeting Hamas. The Israeli military said it struck over 600 targets over the weekend. The Hamas run health ministry in Gaza says at least 8,000 Palestinians have been killed since
10: October 7th. In a
1: speech today, Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, rejected calls for a ceasefire, saying Israel was, quote, fighting the enemies of civilization itself. The CBC's Ellen Morrow joins me from Jerusalem with more. So, Ellen, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he spoke today. What did we hear from him?
6: Well, another strongly worded statement from Benjamin Netanyahu. David, really pushing back on the calls we've been hearing for there to be a ceasefire in Gaza as the humanitarian crisis there uh, worsens. Netanyahu saying that calling on Israel for a ceasefire is just like calling on it to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism. We also uh, heard him refer to the October 7th attacks here in Israel extensively. You know, clearly keen to remind people of what happened here on that day. He described the savagery of those attacks, the barbarism of those attacks. 1,400 people killed, more than 230 others, Israel says, taken uh, hostage. Now Netanyahu was asked about uh, the military campaign, the increasing military campaign in Gaza. Israel says it's targeted at Hamas infrastructure, but there is growing criticism of what is happening there. Criticism that it amounts to the collective punishment of uh, civilians in Gaza who are facing a worsening humanitarian crisis and mounting death tolls. Here's what Netanyahu said to that criticism.
10: I can tell you one thing. We're going out of our way to prevent civilian casualties, not only by asking civilians to move, calling them to move, arranging a place for them to be, which is safe. We have to do everything we can to minimize civilian casualties, but we cannot give up the fight because then... I think this uh, will have disastrous consequences, not only for the future of my country, but for the future of your country, your country's.
6: Netanyahu on the defensive there, but again, Israel is facing uh, increasing criticism as civilians in Gaza face another night of heavy uh, aerial bombardment, increasing ground operations. We're hearing from countries calling for a ceasefire, aid agencies, the UN, all calling for a ceasefire, all calling on Israel to do more to get desperately needed aid uh, into Gaza. You heard Netanyahu there refer uh, in that clip to Israel's call for people to move from the north of Gaza to the the South for their safety. But since that call was first made, we've still seen uh, airstrikes, uh, c- civilian casualties happening in the South. The, the uh, Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, says the death toll is now over 8,000 people, including more than 3,000 children, David.
1: Okay, so Ellen, while the military campaign and the humanitarian crisis continue, there was also news today about the hostages. What can you tell us about that?
6: There was mixed emotions on the hostage front today, David. Uh, this evening we had a speck of positive uh, news from the Israel Defense Forces and the Israel uh, Security Agencies, saying that overnight, uh, last night, they rescued a hostage from the October 7th attacks. A young uh, soldier named Ori Megidish, the IDF, saying that she's been medically checked, that she's now uh, with her family. So uh, again, a rare speck of positive news. But But earlier in the day, there was a disturbing development. Hamas released a video showing three uh, women. We're not showing you that video, but we we are showing you a still image from it. Netanyahu later identified those three women as people who were taken hostage uh, in the October 7th attacks. In the video, one of the women is heard berating uh, the Israeli government and Netanyahu. Now, we don't know the circumstances of that video. We don't know when it was shot. Where? it was shot, uh, the the full circumstances uh, around it. But certainly, you know, that has provoked a reaction here uh, this evening. And we have heard growing concerns from family members of some of the hostages about the increasing military campaign, who fear that it could put their loved ones at further risks. risk. Netanyahu pushed back against that tonight as well, pointing to the rescue of Ori Magidish, saying that it shows that the ground operation can help rescue people. But certainly, there are uh, concerns for some of the family members that it might not have that effect for everybody.
1: Okay, Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Jerusalem. Reports of a communications blackout in Gaza began over the weekend. Now, we're hearing of warehouses in Gaza being broken into by desperate Palestinians in search of aid. Nearly three dozen trucks carrying aid entered Gaza on Sunday, but it's still just a drop in the ocean, according to relief agencies. This, as Israel's Prime Minister reaffirmed his stance against a ceasefire on Hamas.
10: I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire... After the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not
1: happen. Tommaso de is a spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Tommaso, it's good to speak with you again.
11: Thank you for having me today.
1: We, we spoke with a lot of aid groups on, on Friday who had lost contact with their people inside Gaza once the Internet and, and communication systems went down. Have, have you been able to reconnect with your people and, and how are they saying things have changed uh, since Israel started this next phase of, of the war?
11: Yes, fortunately, we were able to reconnect with our colleagues yesterday at around 4 a.m. our time. Uh, I mean, I have to say that the connection is still a bit challenging, so it's not uh, uh, completely stable all the day long. The stories that we heard were uh, pretty concerning, I have to say, uh, because mainly what they were telling us, that the people who were in Gaza were not able to contact the emergency medical service, so they were not able to contact Palestine Crescent and the ambulances. So what they were doing, and I quote them, they told us, Uh, we will do it in the old way. And old way means that they were just uh, um, listening to the noise of the shelling, the bombardments, and then they were taking ambulances and going toward that zone, which, of course, is pretty risky for for our uh, people. But then uh, they told us it was the only way to make sure that they were able to reach uh, uh, wounded people.
1: That has to be, you know, an extra hardship on top of what already is an awful situation. I mean, what's their analysis of where the humanitarian situation uh, is right now after the last 72 hours or so?
11: Yeah, absolutely. They they just told us that the situation is deteriorating minute after minute, not even anymore hour after hour. The reality is that uh, there is huge needs that are growing. And uh, the the more the conflict will go on, uh, the more uh, needs will grow. And this is why we were calling for a de-escalation, because really it's critical to make sure to get uh, to hospitals and to people what they need uh, in terms of humanitarian aid, in terms of medical supplies and medicine, but also to find... uh, finally, a humanita- a safe humanitarian space where we can bring humanitarian aid, but then we can serve people in safety. This is really our utmost uh, priority at the moment. We,
1: we heard from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today. He addressed the media and he reiterated a ceasefire is not on the table for Israel. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that? And how will your teams do their jobs if there is no ceasefire or humanitarian pause at all?
11: You know, the, the, the job of the very cross-crescent network, it's really, first of all, to serve communities and to be where needs are. So we'll continue to do so, even in challenging situation and with limited capacity. I think that the international community needs to realize that uh, people in Gaza are really desperate. The needs are growing and they need a humanitarian answer. That cannot be only some trucks entering from the southern border between Gaza and Egypt. So our call is to so urge really all the parties, but also partners, stakeholders in the region and in the international level to make this happen. The reality is that the situation in the field is telling us that people are, simply don't know what to do. Mm. And the logistics is very complicated. So we need to find safety for those people.
1: No, it's certainly a situation where your ambulance drivers just have to go towards the bomb it is not an ideal emergency response system. And, and we, we've heard reports uh, that more aid trucks are getting in. Uh, still not to the level you want. But we're also seeing reports from the United Nations that people broke into the warehouses and, and are stealing things. So, uh, so what can you tell us about what supply levels are like for Red Cross, Red Crescent, and, and what the situation is there?
11: I think that the, the scene that we saw, of the looting of the <clears throat> UN warehouse, it's a, I mean, it's a clear icon of the desperation of people. Of course, these things should not happen. There were, those warehouses should be respected. We all know that. But the reality is that Coming to myself, if my daughter would need some food and no one is getting this food for me, probably, I mean, I would understand the frustration of people and I would do something that is not probably respecting the rules. So, so I think that the desperation of people, uh, it's really arrived at a level where we need to give them an answer. And this answer cannot be trickling humanitarian aid, the one day 10 trucks, another day 20 trucks, the other day 50 trucks. Of course, don't get me wrong. It's a very positive uh, sign that that border is still open
10: mm-hmm.
11: and that we are able to get some trunks in, but we need to give a different humanitarian answer. Otherwise, the situation will just get worse.
1: Right, so the aid is inconsistent, and it seems as though the conflict uh, will not stop. And Israel, we don't yet know where this is going to go, but the, the ground invasion has begun in some capacity. So, Tomaso, just as, as, a, as a final point, like, w- what's your biggest concern right now as things seem to be moving into a new phase of this conflict?
11: Safety. Safety. We said it since the beginning. Safety and protection of hospitals. Safety and protection of civilians. Safety and protection of healthcare workers. This needs to be said, and we will keep saying that, and we'll do our utmost in public, but also in closed-door discussion with every partner to make sure that hospital and care facility and civilians are respected. What we are seeing in Gaza It's really not uh, acceptable. People are in desperate need of everything, and there is not really a humanitarian response to that. Time for words is finished. These, those babysitting incubators and people in intensive care units cannot wait. And we really need to give them an answer as soon as possible. So, so
1: on that, you need fuel to keep things running in a lot of the hospitals, the equipment. Uh, but the big concern from Israel and others is that the fuel will be diverted and used by Hamas. So how confident are you that fuel can go into Gaza and be used strictly for humanitarian reasons and not be diverted and used in a military application?
11: Well, I, I can speak about our own organization and our own standards. And we know that the, the um, that all the items that Red Cross Crescent is bringing around the world is usually solely for humanitarian purposes uh, at a high level standard bounded uh, by our principle, our conduct uh, and our all uh, internal policies. So this is something that I'm pretty confident. And and again, our call is on all the parties and all the stakeholders. It's not just one, but there are many. And the reality is that everyone needs to have the responsibility to organize a space where humanitarian aid can enter and all humanitarian aid can enter. And if the need is fuel at the moment, which is exactly the case, then we will need an agreement to have fuel for humanitarian purposes. Tommaso della
1: Longa with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Thanks for your time yet again today. Thank you, sir. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.